Welcome back to Supreme Myths. This is actually my 70th episode of this podcast. I really didn't think I'd get past 10. And I am so happy today to have as my guest, Professor Jessica Sibley um, of Boston University Law School. She's a faculty, a faculty research scholar there. Uh, Jessica graduated from Stanford, went to law school at Michigan, got a PhD at uh, University of Michigan as well. She is an expert on intellectual property, constitutional law, and the humanities, which is a nice trio of things to be an expert in. Uh, she was a Guggenheim Fellow, clerk for district court, and the First Circuit, and I'm so excited to talk to her today. Jessica, thanks so much for being here. Glad to be here. Chat with you. So as I've been doing with all of my guests this summer, I need to ask you what your reactions were to the term, how surprised you were, and knowing our politics are very similar. How did you sleep at night during during the debacle? Yeah. Um, well, so I have a couple. I mean, people have been asking me this question a lot. So I hope this doesn't sound canned because I feel it deeply the way I my reaction to mm -hmm. it. Um, my my first impression is that, and I know this sounds extreme, but I feel like it's a declaration of war. A, a, a gauntlet has been thrown down, a door open, the majority of the court walked right through it. And it's scary to me. It's very, very scary. So that's my first feeling. It's this accumulation of power in the court away from agencies, away from individuals, away from the states, away from Congress at times. You know, Mark Lemley has written this new piece called the Imperial Supreme Court. I saw and that. It sort of feels like that to me. And that is frightening. But I mean, I also think of myself as a teacher. So I'll say something just briefly about what it feels like. I'm asking myself a lot, how am I going to teach constitutional law this year? Like I have, you have to teach it differently. Things have changed. And so I've been thinking about that. I don't know how to teach it. I don't want my students to think that law doesn't matter, you know, but that's what it feels like. And, um, you know, I think it's a noble profession being a lawyer. I think lawyers can change the world, but there's something um, very destabilizing about this. And I've been thinking very hard about how, as a teacher, I'm going to teach con law. And then um, I'll just say as a person and a, and a woman and a parent, um, I'll just say something about Dobbs specifically. Sure. Um, it is the most regressive anti-humanist opinion I have seen in my lifetime. And um, I'll say in recent memory, it, it looks like Bowers versus Hardwick to me. It, it comes closest to that, uh, misconstrues the nature of the right, fails to appreciate fundamental importance of the liberty interest, gets history totally wrong, grotesquely stingy with constitutional interpretation. It's jaw-droppingly ignorant of the lives of most everyday people to whom the opinion fly, applies. It just reads like an essay of a sort of isolated and confused cabal of people who think they know the way the world works and they don't. So I reject it. I reject it the way I rejected Bowers when I read it in law school, when it was still good law. And I hope that means that this case will be um, overturned someday, but I doubt it will be in our lifetime. And that um, is tragedy. Thank you for sharing those feelings. Of course, most of many of us felt this, the same way. I want to add one comment about Dobbs. I, I just can't believe they repeated the absurd proposition in one paragraph that distinctions based on pregnancy are not distinctions based on gender. For those listening, for those listening to this, um, Jessica just put her hand in her, her head in her hands, um, I, and I couldn't agree more. I don't understand how we can let them get away with something so obviously stupid. Let's 
let's back up and say reasonable people can disagree about abortion. If you think the fetus is a human being, then uh, I'm not going to – I have no way to say you're wrong about that. But I do have a way to say it is objectively absurd to suggest that distinctions based on pregnancy are not distinctions based on gender. Do you agree with that? Yeah, the Godoldig opinion. Yeah. The Godoldig opinion is a sham case, and right. Congress responded to it right away. There is this interesting wrinkle about pregnant people today when we think about trans rights and I gender know. fluidity. But um, right, uh, if anyone watched um, or listened to Kiara Bridges take down Josh Hawley most recently in the um, halls of Congress on that distinction, yeah. we can both say that pregnancy largely affects women without, by also saying, uh, by, by by also not um, d uh, discouraging or thinking um, negatively about trans people. I mean, it is a it is a fluid, large category, and we can understand both of those things at the same time. Yes, my, my teenagers get very angry at me when I refer to pregnant women as opposed to pregnant people. <laughs> um, but that doesn't change the reality that obvi no, obviously, these, yeah, we agree on that. One both mar marginalized and vulnerable people yes. who can get pregnant. Yes. And the idea of pregnancy discrimination not being largely a discrimination on the basis of gender. So I just 10 minutes ago, we're, we're taping this on, um, I believe today is uh, uh, Tuesday. Um we are. I just learned 10 minutes ago that some judge in Florida said some minor couldn't have an abortion. I think it was Florida. Don't get if I'm wrong about that. But this just happened. Some minor couldn't get an abortion. The judge saying she was too immature to make the decision whether to have an abortion, which wow. to me is the most astoundingly stupid thing I've ever heard. You're mature enough to have a child, but not mature enough to know if you should. It's insane, Jessica. I mean, it's just insane. Uh, and I mean, also, I mean, my students regularly ask me about bypass, judicial bypasses yes. and, and, you know, the, the answer is in most states, the judicial bypass is a pro forma. You show up, you talk about your condition, you have a, you have a, um, uh, an advocate with you and you're allowed to go get the medical procedure. You know, what's going to happen is what you just described is more and more, this is going to be a license for judges to say no. Um, and, you know, the, the, I mean, we can talk all day about how Dobbs is a horrendous opinion, but also in that opinion was the idea of how the domestic supply of infants. Yeah, <laughs> that's yes. what Justice Alito said. And, you know, sure enough, if you're not um, if you're not mature enough to um, decide whether or not to terminate a pregnancy and you're not mature enough to um, be a parent, although no one's going to take that baby away. I, you know, I gather that yes. it's going to be decided. Um, you know, this is going to force separation between um, between uh, girls and women and their babies. And um, there's a whole story about that racialized story about family um, separation that is going on that is going to be um, doubled down on because of this decision. 100 percent. One last thing about teaching con law, and then we'll turn to your great new book. Um, so people, because you know I'm a super legal realist, people ask me all when it comes to the Supreme Court. People ask me all the time, "How do you teach constitutional law when you've written things like constitutional law isn't law and things like that?" And, and my answer, and I wrote, a, I wrote a whole piece about it, saying my students need to learn it for the bar, you know. And I love my students, and they are very, very smart and talented, but they're not. Um, Harvard and Yale students who can pass the bar, you know, with, with little help. So I teach it because it's on the bar. I, I teach it because they have to talk the talk. And you still have to talk the talk to convince judges what you want to do. And it's fantastic for critical legal thinking. 
which is, of course, helpful to all lawyers, whether you're a corporate lawyer or litigator or whatever. But I don't pretend there's law involved in Supreme Court constitutional decision-making or there ever has been. And I think that's okay. I think, I think students are sophisticated enough to understand those four points. Do, do, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, so I always wonder what we mean when we say law. Um, and right. Maybe by the end of this conversation, we'll talk a little bit about film because I, I think there's there's a popular conception of law. There's popular consciousness. There is formalism. You know, there are rules or whatever yeah. those might be. And then there's the practice. You know, the getting things done in the interstices of everyday life of negotiation and moving moving lines and stuff like that. And I guess so. I don't. I don't. When you say it's not law, I mean, if you mean it's preferences all the way down, um, you know, I. I guess. You know, I. <laughs> I, I mean, I want to say yes. I totally agree. Except yes. sometimes, I, I think there's a spectrum, and um, I think there's a spectrum, and I think. Uh, I think there are historical time periods when we can see the court um, reflecting not at their own preferences necessarily, which I think is different. That's really monarchical, but more reflecting trends in society. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of um, that kind of politics or whatever we want to call it feels differently than somebody just saying, you know, I like the world this way, so I'm writing an opinion this way. You know, so I, I guess I just make that distinction. So I was going to drop this subject, but now I don't want to. Um, and, and a lot of this you know, is supposed to be kind of spontaneous. Yeah, so, right. uh, so Erwin Chemerinsky was on last week. Um, and uh, I always go back to an article Erwin wrote in 1989. Uh, and it was simply the forward to the Harvard Law Review, you know, which is as prestigious a thing as a, a law professor can be asked to do. And he said, in and Erwin's not a critical legal scholar. I mean, he wasn't that kind of person. He's not that kind of person. But this forward to the Harvard Law Review in 1989 said that, there was, that constitutional law will always be about the balancing of values and the aggregate of the Supreme Court justices' preferences. Those preferences may be deference at times, but it's still the, the aggregate of their differences. And then I think about Holmes and Posner. And, and today, from the right, Adrian Vermeule from the far right, and all of these generationally, I mean, Adrian says a lot of things I despise, but he's a generationally smart person, as was Posner, Holmes, Chemerinsky. They all agree on this, that it's, if it's, it's either all or mostly values all the way down. Why can't you and I say it? I think it's true. I mean, I just yeah, no, so, so um, I'm not going to disagree with Erwin. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a fool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I largely agree with him. I mean, I've learned so much from him. Um, yeah. yeah. So I guess um, I think I think I mean values is a different word to me. And of course, the title of my book talks about fundamental values. Yes. Um, uh, so I, I I actually I do think constitutional law is a space in which we debate national values. Yes. For sure. Yes. And um, you know whether that space is rigged regularly. Um, in favor of certain kinds of people, certain groups, um, definitely favors the judges who make the decisions. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. But I think it is, yeah, we debate that. That's a place where we debate values. I mean, I've said before, um, it's a place, it's the na national narratives, contested national narratives of who we are, where we think we're going, you know, who we've been. Yeah. I mean, of course, yeah. I have, by the way, I have zero doubt Erwin would agree with every syllable you just uttered. Okay. Um, right. You have written a book. Uh, called I Intellectual Property and Fundamental Values in the Internet Age. 
I want to make the concession up front, not that it will surprise anybody, that I know nothing or very little about intellectual property, though I have lots of questions about intellectual property. Uh, and frankly, and since this is my podcast, I guess I've already mentioned Posner once, but I usually mention him at least once a podcast, this time twice. Uh, he and I had many conversations about intellectual property. I learned some, but I am by no means up on it. So tell me why you wrote this book, what is the main thesis of the book, and what are you trying to accomplish by writing this book? How's that? Sure. All right. Yeah. Good questions. Um, well, I'll just say, so um, the book came from my other book. Uh, my my, my uh, A book I published in 2015 called The Eureka Myth was about mm -hmm. everyday workings of intellectual property in ordinary authors and inventors' lives. Just sort of, ex it, um, it's a, it was an empirical, qualitative empirical project exploring how IP actually works for people rather than what we say um, it does in the doctrine. And from that, from that empirical um, study, uh, you know, everything happens the way we are scholars, like pieces get hived off and questions don't get answered in this book. So this is the, one of the questions that got left over from that book was the idea of what does it mean to do good work? Um, what what is progress to these people, the people who are the authors, who are mm -hmm. the inventors? And um, and so, and as a constitutional law professor as well, I started thinking about the I, the word progress in the in the Constitution and whether what, if there's not very good history about that about that clause, Article One, Section Eight, Clause Eight, what it means, what it was meant to mean. It's there's just not you know we can't. We can't do that with that clause. Um, and so we can't do that with most of the Constitution. Sorry yeah, to interrupt. Right, but go ahead. Right. Go ahead. A, it's a particularly mysterious, um, yeah. absent history. And so um, excavating the nature of progress as it's evolved over time in a living constitutionalism kind of way um, is was part of the, this, this book is thinking about what is progress? What is IP? What is progress for IP? Um, and and one of the things I argue in the book, um, which will surprise many people who are IP lawyers and scholars, is that it's not a law and economics model of progress. That is, um, we, we, that's, that's Posner's uh, model of right. IP. Um, and uh, it's, a cum it's an accumulationist idea that we just sort of gather more patents and copyrights and also trademarks, I guess, although that doesn't come from the progress clause. Um, and uh, you know, a sort of utilitarian maximalist view of, of the good. And um, today, that might have been what it was in 1790. Um, it's hard to know what it really meant then. Um, yes. But it, IP was very different in 1792. It's changed dramatically. And today, if we talk to people who are generating the work that we think IP is supposed to protect and incentivize, mm -hmm. Progress to them is about certain values like equality and dignity and distributive justice. It's not an aggregate accumulationist um, asset driven model of progress. And so the book explores that through cases, through empirical studies um, and through some philosophy. Well, so the title. So, again, the title is and I hope everybody gets it is against progress, intellectual property, and fundamental values in the internet age. Uh, Brian Leiter was on here a month or so ago, and, and Brian takes the position that, and I agree with him, that the internet is an existential crisis we have not come close to, to understanding when it comes to free speech and, frankly, other issues. So I'm curious, in the internet age, what does that add to the substance yeah. of your book? So, um, 
so intellectual property at its core, this is an oversimplification, but it's it's anti-copying rules. Right. It, pre so it prevents the copying of an authored work without permission, with some exceptions, copying of inventions. It's anti-copying. It's always meant to create some form of scarcity in the copy to control a market for the good. Um, the internet is a massive copying machine. I mean, it enables <laughs> copying of everything, faster, distrib wide distribution, viral distribution. I mean, it just challenges the whole idea of the rule of intellectual property. I mean, if we understand the rule to be really about that, and I could say why I think the rule is actually about growing a public, growing a public domain. Um, but, but it is, it, it does, it, it's a balance between anti-copying and that, and the internet just has completely disrupted, um, it's just taken, it's taken away any, um, any mechanism to control copying. And so it's an, it is an existential threat to intellectual property, among other things. And, um, and so that has, I think, changed what we think IP is for. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that, because I've done a lot of work about free speech in the internet. And it's my view that the internet has dramatically changed how we should view some core free speech rules. One example would be the Brandenburg test for incitement or true threats is an insane, the, the eminence part of that test is right. insane in an internet world. And I wrote a piece, a couple of pieces about that. It is my view, and I, I apologize to the free speech scholars out there listening to this who don't fall into this category, but it is my view that 90% of free speech scholars have not evolved when it comes to the relationship between speech and the internet. Do you have a similar, are you willing to share what you think about IP scholars and whether they also are in a state? I think they're in a state of denial is my view about many free speech scholars. Yes. So um, are you asking me about free speech? No, I'm asking about IP scholars. Are they, um, I'm saying no. is free speech scholars have not caught up to the internet. Have IP scholars yeah. got up to them? Oh yes. Oh, so interesting. I, I will say I um I love my IP colleagues. We are. I just came from a conference at Stanford, the um in a, in a IPSC conference, which is a yearly conference. And um so yeah, I mean we've been obsessed with the internet. I mean if right. I think of it is an incredibly diverse group of um, colleagues, um, generationally diverse as well as diverse along all the metrics we might care about. It is it is maybe not um, ideologically as diverse as um as other disciplines maybe but i think the 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 tech savvy the um the folks who are drawn to ip early on when it was i mean it's a new field so let me just say you know when i went to law school there was only one full-time ip law faculty um at michigan wow um uh, and I went to school in the 90s, uh, so yeah. the beginning of the internet. But um, now you have like five people. You can't, you know, you're not a real law school if you don't have <laughs> many. Um, so, right. so IP is a new field. And so let me just say, I think that, um, we, yeah, we're, we're, we're not behind on the internet. That's I mean, great. Of, That's great. Yeah, but, but, um, but there's a huge, there is a debate about um, whether, I mean, no, I, I, I said where the IP community is still stuck is in a law and economics model of intellectual property. There's still a there, there's still a resistance. You know, if it's not a cost benefit analysis, if it's not that like, well, what is it? What could it be? And then it feels like turtles all the way down. And I think I wrote this book in part to say, no, no, we we've always been making choices. We can continue to make choices. You know, um, so I think if we're stuck, it may be on that right. analysis rather than um, 
rather than on sort of an old fashioned, a real old view. So, I mean, so this podcast has both, I think, very sophisticated law professors, lawyers, and informed lay people. For the informed lay people, and frankly for me, because <laughs> I think that's how I view myself on this topic, what are the fundamental purposes and differences between and among trademark, copyright, patent? Okay, so um, so IP one hundred and one. Yeah. Um, so so all right. So um, co- so the progress clause of the Constitution talks about um, writings and inventions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, writings are authored works, tends to be authored works and inventions are, um, I mean, originally thought of, um, would be, they are the patents in that clause, although the clause doesn't say that. And those are like inventive machines. They were things to make candles, the print part of the printing press. They were, uh, so the copyright and patents are works of authorship. And originally books, maps, charts, uh, eventually music and drawing and stuff like that. Um, and pho- eventually photography, which was hugely controversial because is it an author or is it made by a machine, right? Um, and patents are inventions, what we think of as useful objects, useful tools. And, um, and they're attached to authors and inventors. Um, so there's this story, this myth to take the quote from behind you, there's this myth, <laughs> the author and the inventor sort of embedded in the idea of copyrights and patents. Copyright law prevents copying the author's work without permission. Originally, it was the idea of the whole, like don't copy the whole book and then sell it on the marketplace and replace that book in the marketplace with the authors. That would just depress the market. Right. So usually copyright was preventing what we think of as piracy, wholesale piracy today. Um, and patent was the same thing. Don't rip off that invention and sell it as yours or not sell it as yours. Just sell it when somebody gets a limited monopoly uh, over the good to, to control the market and recoup their investment. Um, th- those are very old fashioned ways of thinking about it, but it's important to think that's where it came from. Trademarks are different. Trademarks are um, logos or words or they, we say it's devices in the Trademark Act. It's um, tr- trademarks are authorized under the Commerce Clause. Trademark law is a, a form of unfair competition law. It's, it's a com- right. it's competition law. It's it's and we protect marks whether it's the Nike swoosh or the word Nike or the Golden Arches or the word McDonald um, as a way of designating goods and services as coming from a particular um, entity. So you go to the store and you want to buy um, suntan lotion, you can buy Neutrogena, you can buy Aveeno, you can buy the CVS brand, and you know those are all different. They may actually be the same exact product. Yes, right. But they come from different places, and we right. protect the designation as a way of, it's a label, it's a labeling system. It's a, it's a different form. Okay, and I'm sorry to be still in, in 101, uh-huh. but a couple more questions. So yeah. let's say I'm teaching con law. And I want or any course, and a book comes out in 2017 about a either about an unrelated subject. I want to, I want to make a. I almost said Xerox, which I think is a word most of our audience wouldn't even recognize. But I want to make a copy of two and a half pages of a 300-page book to hand out to my class verbatim for them to use as a tool to learn. Am I allowed to do that without getting permission? Um, it was the book recently published. Yeah, 2017 or 15 or something. Yeah. So, um, so copyright law 
allows for um, copying verbatim, okay. small, small pieces of works, especially for the purposes of teaching and research, mm -hmm. um, especially for the classroom mm -hmm. um, in a in the handout kind of way. Is that called but, fair use? Is that the fair use thing? Uh, so there's there's fair use. There's also um, fair use has four factors and it often gets balanced. I was trying not to talk about the four factors, but yeah, it's called fair use. <laughs> okay. um, but it's also there are also parts of the Copyright Act that have explicit exceptions to certain kinds of uses and teaching classroom teaching is also there. Okay. So um, so I, I would if I was if I was arguing this, I, I would find two reasons why you could do that. Okay. Um, one would be 107 and one one would be um, in another part of the statute. Okay. And one more specific question, and then I want to get back to fundamental values in your title okay. and, and link that to your work in general. So, and again, I'm sorry to mention Posner for the third time, but he, he and I used to uh, have a conversation about Martin Luther King's famous speech in Washington in 1963. Um, which is one of the most famous public speeches in American history. I think it's fair, fair to say that. Certainly one of the most important speeches in, in American yeah. history. And I was surprised to learn that the King family pretty much owns that speech. And I don't for the life of me understand how someone talking to 200 or 300,000 people in public about a public issue can own what or his family, can own what was said. What am I missing? Oh, well, um, so the speech was written down. Yeah. So it was actually a written speech. Mm -hmm. So what, what was copyrighted was not the ephemeral performance of the speech, although it, it could have eventually been copyrighted as a fixed performance. It was. All co copyright has to, you can only own, own a copyright if it's fixed in a tangible medium. So like, this is being recorded and simultaneously transmitted, so this could be copyrighted, our conversation here. But if you're just doing stand-up comedy, for example, that's not copyrighted. What you can do is copyright your speech, write it down. Hmm. And, and, I mean, he did. But, but just my understanding is they won't, they're very, you, it was yeah. filmed. I mean, there's a film of the entire speech. Yeah. Yeah, and, CBS filmed it, right? There right. all these. Yeah. Right. But but we're not. But my understanding is you can't show that whole speech without their permission. So so um, I am uh, the MLK family is very protective of Dr. King's authored works. Fair I enough. Say, I mean, I have I have various complex complex views on this, and I I hear your rage. So let yeah. me just say two. Let me say two sides to it. On the one hand, um, heirs own copyrighted works. It's inherited. It, copyrighted works last well beyond death most of the time. Life plus seventy, or in, in MLKs, it's ninety-five years um, after publication. So it's like twenty fifty-eight. Those speeches go into the public domain, and they argue that they are trying to keep his legacy the way he would want it, and so they only license his work in certain ways that they approve of. Now. That just feel if copyright is supposed to be an engine of free speech, which is one of the things that we say, um, the idea that the MLK family is suppressing the debate and the discussion of his speech by refusing to license it um, is really upsetting. But it is the way copyright works. And it's part of what I said. Early copyright only lasted 14 years. In 1790, the first copyright statute gave exclusive rights for only 14 wow, years. I didn't know that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 
And only in certain, like it was a narrow right. It was books, charts, um, and maps. It wasn't speeches or personal letters. Like the scope of copyright in 1790 was very, very small. As the, as the scope of copyright has grown over the 19th and 20th century to include everything, like even merchandising labels, even our our photos we upload on, on social media, it covers everything. And it lasts for so long, we have run into this problem that is actually not facilitating speech, it is censoring speech. But the idea that authors and their heirs want to control the sure. work forward is totally understandable for, in a broad perspective. It feels heinous when it's something as important as this, but what the court said in the MLA, there was a litigated case on this, as I'm sure yeah. you know, what, if, if the more famous authors get less rights because we deem those things more important, there seems to be a perverse problem in the incentive theory of copyright. So we don't we don't want the, there's no public interest exception. For well, see, that's what, so I, where I was heading, and I and this is my gut, and and I want to anticipate an objection, if not by you, by others. We draw fuzzy lines in the law all the time, so I don't want that objection to come in. It yeah. feels like to me that there should be some kind of I, you said public interest. I, I guess when you're making a speech. For the public, that you that the that the person making it thinks is in the public interest, that deals with public matters. I feel like can a politician do that? Can, can an elected official do this? Can can Joe Biden give a speech to the American people and say it cannot be reproduced? So government works aren't copyrightable. Okay. Under such, I'm so, sorry um, for the ignorance. I really. Yeah, so, I mean, they're, so they're all copyright is complicated. But I mean, let, let me just let's take it out of the MLK context. Again, I, I the sympathy here. There are there are ways around this. This was a you know I don't know if you're thinking about the Selma law uh, Selma movie that tried to use right. The, well, that's one the, of the things. Right? Yeah. You know, an eyes on the prize for the longest time had to edit out all these important things, and history gets. I mean, it's just yeah. it's horrendous. Like, part of what you want is there to be an easier way to license, or you want a broader scope of fair use. And we can make those arguments, but let's just not say Emma. Let's not say it's Maya Angelou. Let's mm-hmm. say it's Langston Hughes. Let's say it's a, a poet whose you know work is so important to the American psyche. Are you telling me that we think we should just be able to freely publish them and use them whenever we want? I think I'm not going to argue with you because you're the expert and I'm I'm less than a layperson. Yeah. But it does feel like someone who makes whose life is centered around making a profit from their work is different than someone whose life is not centered around making a profit from right. their work. And Martin Luther King was not making a profit, I don't think, from his work. But now his family gets to make a yeah, profit. Yeah, so, so this, is, this is the problem. If I had my druthers about copyright, copyright would not extend as far as it would. And heirs, heirs can be very um, meddling yes. in the copyright balance. So, um you know, the idea that works maybe should expire upon death or certain works could expire upon death or things. I mean, that that would change the whole thing. So um, the, so what you're talking about, though, is the commercial versus non-commercial line. And that is an important line in copyright. And um, one of the things that uh, art authors have done in the 20th, late 20th and early 21st century to try to manage that line, which feels uncomfortable because there is no such distinction in copyright except one part of the fair use statute. And uh, uh, the um, is 
dedicate their works or create um, open licenses for their works or be more explicit. Copyright is sort of a very broad brush. And um, with Creative Commons and open source licensing, a lot of artists and authors can be a little bit more um, directed. Like, yes, you can use it in a non-commercial way. You can't use it if you're going to sell it. And that's that just is that's them adapting to what has become a copyright bloat over time. Right. And what, so law has not caught up at all. What we have is all this private ordering that has ad adjusted to the to the complaint that you have. But the MLK estate has not. And just to bring it back to my book, not because no, um, please do. it's, it's please all do. that important, but one of the values that gets um, litigated more and more in the late 20th and early 21st century over copyright is the dignity interest of authors, is this idea that copyright is somehow protecting reputation, protecting legacy, um, protecting anti-hierarchy ideas. And one of the things I think we can read into the MLK estate's um, assertions, and we see that I think it's sometimes in music cases and the Marvin Gaye estate and stuff like that, is this sense that I'm gonna use copyright um, to assert a sense of a dignity interest in the author. And that's troubling because it feels again, like a form of censorship. But if we're gonna worry that the marketplace of ideas is just a bullshit concept <laughs> in, in, in the First Amendment, we can also recognize that when authors are trying to assert some control over this crazy viral space of the internet, we might say copyright actually is pretty good for that. It, it's pretty good for that. So here's a dumb question. I, I mean, I just thought of while you were talking. Um, so I, I blog once a week for Dorf on Law, Mike Dorf, um, and uh, almost once a week. Uh, I don't think I, I'd have to go back and check, but I don't think there's anything on that website suggesting anything about copyright or anything else. Can someone, could Fox News take a blog post of mine, read it on the air, and just, and, and use it for whatever purposes they, not that they would, because yeah. nothing I say Fox News wants to use, but you know what I mean. Yeah, no, so so when you uh, fix your expression in a tangible medium like a blog post, mm -hmm. it is copyrighted instantaneously. You don't have to register it, you don't have to put okay. the little seat on it, you don't have to do anything. It is once it is fixed, if it is original, which it is, it is yours and you can control it. If Fox News scrapes the whole thing and then apes it on, they are performing. They are publicly performing your work and the public performance is an one of the exclusive rights of copyright owners. It's like I can't I can't perform um, a, you know, a, a contemporary poet's poem on in an auditorium. That would be a performance of their work. That that you know that that's what Fox News would be doing. They can't do that. And what's the is it? If they're going to criticize it, if they're going to quote it and then criticize it, and then that's different. That's okay. fair. That would be more like fair use. Interesting. Okay, so I, so I want to get back to fundamental values because I know one of the things I love about your work is um, you're very passionate. I I. I I I love my fellow con law professors. I sometimes wish there was more passion. And that's not something that anybody can accuse you or me of, I think. Um, fundamental values in the internet age. What fundamental values is the current, are the current, is, sorry, the current regulation of trademark and copyright and, and patent missing? Or, 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 or is that too critical? How do you tie in fundamental values to all right, this? Right. So, so, um, so, the, so the way I think about it, so that the statutes are, are bulky and um, and they're like you know they're the 
proverbial Christmas tree, add another amendment, add another ornament. And over time, so I, you can't read the statute necessarily and say, what do they stand for? But copyright has been basically a process of interest, interest lobbying over time, different groups, publishers, um, performance artists, et cetera. And, and it's sort of a conglomeration. Jessica Littman famously wrote this book called Digital Copyright, all about sort of the history of copyright legislation as basically backroom deal making. And that's really what it is. Um, and I think one of the responses to copyright law over time and to that process, the last time the Copyright Act was amended substantially, 1998, mm -hmm. but the big act was 1976. Then we had the Digital Millennium Copyright Act in 98. And then we recently had a music amendment, the MMA in 2019, but it really hasn't been all that amended. Um, and so what people are doing is using the copyright statute. This is where you get the values, using this old antique statute um, to litigate issues that are actually of contemporary relevance to them today. And so that's where the fundamental values, it's not that the laws are imbuing certain values, it's that people are using the law to assert values that we don't usually think are in the copyright statute, like I was mentioning, a dignity or equality. Right. Privacy, copyright is used regularly to assert privacy interests, for example. And we just don't think about, I mean, we, naive, formalist, positivist lawyers in the past, you know, who are just using <laughs> copyright. We didn't think that that's what copyright was for. It is It is now often used as a privacy um, shield. And so that's one of the examples. Patent law, you know, patent law historically has been this way of thinking, I need to wrap up my invention in a protective shield to control a market for a limited time so that no one scoops my invention and I re can recoup all the investment that took me this really long time to make. Sure. That's the, the mythic story. And that's always made sense to me, by the way. Well, it's made sense to me. I mean... Yeah, no, it, it makes it that makes sense if that is actually how it works. <laughs> that's not how it works. And, um, and it hasn't worked because patent law has changed so much. So now we, we can patent software, um, we can patent business methods, you know, quasi-abstract business methods. You know, patent bloat has also created what we talk about as thickets and innovation traffic jams and races to the patent office, which is very counterproductive and sometimes professionally unethical. And... Um, and so what are the values that are what one of the things we think about in patent law, we think we don't think about patent laws being about distributive justice at all. We think about it in this accumulist asset driven way. But a lot of patentees and putative infringers are arguing about fair shares, for example. Right. They're arguing. So I talk in the book about um, this case called Bowman versus Monsanto, where far. Werner Bowman was a farmer, is a farmer in, in Indiana. He plants Monsanto seeds that are patented. He sells most of the soybean seeds as soy, but then he saves some of the seeds from the harvest to replant for the last crop of the season, which is really risky, which is like you don't get a lot of yield. Saving the seeds and replanting the seeds got him sued. Right. And that's because when he planted the seeds and, and made soy, he actually replicated the seed, which is patent infringement. But Monsanto lets you do that once to sell as soy, according to this license on the back of the bag. But they won't let you, they say, use the soy that you've grown from the seed that you've purchased to replant as seed. They want you to go back and buy new seed. Of course they do. Of course they do. But, you know, so what, I mean, it just feels so wrong. You know, it's, I mean, 
this is saving seed has been something that farmers have been doing forever. Right. And Monsanto inserts the supremacy argument of patent law in this like gross. I mean, they own 92 percent of soybean crops in the United States. Like, right. what are they doing? So that case is about distributive justice, I argue. It's about sure. gross imbalance of resources. But it's argued about on patents. Was it infringing? Is it not infringing? Is it a replica? Is it not a replica? What do we do about self-replicating devices? Because there's a lot of those in the internet age. Right. Well, the court, in its in its graciousness, says we're not talking about all those other self-replicating devices. We're just talking about seeds now. Well, thanks, court. That doesn't help at all. Like a playground footnote in Trinity Lutheran, which turned out yes. not which turned out not to be a playground footnote, which we all knew at the time, but. Um, yeah. Here's a left field question for you, and it may be really dumb. Uh, so what if somebody in some country halfway around the world, not subject to either the personal jurisdiction or the laws of the United States, does something that violates the copyright or trademark or patent laws of the United States, and they do this, you know, I don't know, some country halfway around the world, what remedies are available to people in America who own the patent or the copyright? So, um, I mean, this happens actually a lot with counterfeit goods and trademark as well. Okay. So I think that one of the most anxiety producing regime, I mean, trademark is trying to solve the counterfeit problem. Um, I mean, you're talking about counterfeiting and selling goods elsewhere. Right. Um, so, I mean, IP is territorial. There is no, there's nothing to be done. Really? Unless, I mean, there are treaties. I mean, you can file your IP in other jurisdictions. You can join treaties that recognize mutuality. But IP is a terror. This is also another way that the Internet has just completely changed the domain. Right. Um, there's nothing to be done. Wow, that's interesting. So someone could uh, take someone could rewrite your book in some country halfway around the world who is not privy to any treaty with us and who and who whose all courts have no jurisdiction over sell it and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, nothing. I okay, so my my gut and that's all it is of course cuz I'm speaking from ignorance. My gut on this is that's got to be a pretty big hole in the regime. I mean, I I would think. Right, but just think about how old fashioned this is. This was really about printing presses right. and when the you know, so copyright started we you know um, the more copying technology changed over time, whether it's the printing press, whether it's the telegraph, whether it's the radio, whether I mean, think about the copying technology in the 20th century, um, territory became more and more a problem. Right. Um, this is the, there's a great book by Will Slaughter, who owns the news, about the story of increasing copying technology. Wait, did you say he owns the news? Who, who owns the news? Who owns the news? Oh, who owns the news? Okay, sorry. And yes. the, question, okay. the question is... At, you know, journalism used to be based on local news. Yes. And we didn't worry about about competition between Boston and Baltimore, for example. And in right. fact, the newspapers shared, you know, used to set, there was a there was a postal privilege. The U.S. Post sent the stuff through the mail. It was free if you're helping out the newspaper in Baltimore, for example. Copying was the way news got made. But now that you have telegraphs, when you have fast um, faster transportation between cities, uh, newspapers started competing and they wanted stronger copyright to prevent that competition. This, I mean, you could say the same thing about United States and some faraway jurisdiction. Now that competition might hurt us where it didn't in right. 1790. Right. Here. So this is, but um, 
you know, I mean, again, one of the things in my first book in the Eureka myth I asked was, um, is the incentive story, we need the exclusive right to recoup our investments that we write or we invent in order to make money. Um, that's an overdetermined story in the first instance. Like that's just not true of most everyday creators and innovators. Um, we earn a living, we, we get through in our daily life through contract, through personal relationships, through pro other kinds of property arrangements. Like the idea that IP is the whole game, that we need to control copying, button up, zipped up perfectly, that's just false. Okay. So I don't worry about, I don't worry about leaky intellectual property systems all that much. Right. I actually, I worry much more about overstrong intellectual property systems today. I worry a lot about that. I'm going to segue to film in a minute, but okay. what you just said though makes me just want to say something selfish um, about originalism, which you know I I write a lot about, because you mentioned the printing press and how the original ideas about copyright emanated from the printing press, and, and but of course we're, we we can't we can't stop there in 2022. That would be insane. And what I want to say is. The Founding Fathers' views on free speech were formed by the printing press and were yeah. formed by England. I know you know all of this, but England... Oh, no, to be reminded, yeah. Uh, England censoring with prior restraints what right. people could print. And that was the sum total of their views, most of them, on free speech. And everything Americans know about free speech today in terms of... Um, Anything other than penalties before the fact, as opposed to penalties after the fact, is judge-made living constitutionalism. And yeah. Thomas and Scalia and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett would all agree, do agree, with most free speech doctrine that prevents the government from punishing you after the fact for speech, which is a completely non-originalist idea, and yet they claim to be originalists. And yeah. that well, drives me insane. Well, I mean, let me just say, like, they're, you know, they let themselves go back to this history for Dobbs. Right. And embrace it as if it's like this beautiful antique time. And yet they get it all wrong for the other stuff. Yeah. I mean, well, they got it wrong in Dobbs, too. But I agree. Yes. They pick and choose their history. They pick and choose their originalism. I'm with you on that. Yeah. Um, the printing press, the, I mean, for, I mean, I'll put a plug now for the, the role, law and technology, the intersection of law and technology. And by technology, I really mean sort of the, the, cha the, cha the changing nature of mm -hmm. uh, societal mechanisms um, is just fascinating. I mean, you can you can trace so much to the printing press, actually. I mean, the first copyright statutes were that. Right. And statute, and, I mean, so um, and I mean, I think that we really you said before, we haven't reckoned with the Internet age. I mean, it is we are really still in its infancy. Um, and uh, I think it's it's going to be it's going to be cataclysmic globally. It, you know? And it just occurs to me also that, that I, whatever hard issues are raised by the uh, patent and, and, and copyright parts of the Constitution, I can't imagine anybody thinking we can resolve the hard issues today by going back to 1791, yet they think that about free speech and they think that about abortion. They think that about you know, affirmative. It's insane. Anyway, let's move on. Yeah, I mean, and ironically, it's actually in the Constitution. I right. mean, you could, you could try to anchor IP, yes. but they gave it to Congress. Congress. Congress has the power to right. promote the progress of science and useful arts by passing new well. laws. And what I like to remind, what I like to remind what one calls IP maximalists, the people who think IP needs to be stronger and broader yeah. in order to protect those private rights, 
is that Congress has the power to to just repeal all IP laws. Like that would not be uncon. You know, that right. would be, you know, it's totally Congress's choice, and Congress has been given a blank check on a regular basis to draft these laws. So it's pretty interesting to think of that legislation is where it's at. The court comes sometimes screws it up, but it's where Congress is where we have to put pressure. Although for whatever it's worth, my prediction would be if Congress were to repeal all of those laws, the Supreme Court would find a way in the First Amendment to protect the commercial interests that they want yeah. to protect. But anyway. Yeah, our takings will be take. I mean, yeah, it'll yes. be I mean, right, right. They'd, They'd make something up. They'd make something up, which goes back to, is it really law? But let's not go back there. Okay. Um, you've written a lot about film. I've written, you've written a lot about film, and I am a uh, – there are three things in life I care passionately about. One is constitutional law, one is the NBA, and one is movies, uh, outside of my family and friends, of course, and colleagues. Um, so I'm really fascinated, and, and I, I fancy myself a movie buff. So, so you've talked about film as a legal tool, as a reflection of our values and, and various other parts of it. We don't have a lot of time left, but what, what's your interest in film? And, and, and what would you, if you had to say three really important things about it, what would you say? Well, um, so film is another technology that I think yes. has transformed. So um, I, 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 I love studying film. I studied film as a college student mm -hmm. and then as a um, as a graduate student. And one of the things I, th I think about um, visual narratives as being profoundly um, uh, moving and by moving, I mean coercive that it, ch it shapes our brain in different ways. Um, it embeds memories. I think we, we film film um, moves people, moves communities. And so I think the idea of film being used as evidence uh, in the form of confessions, as the form of day in the life videos, for example, as illustrative tools, or as medical devices, fetal ultrasounds, for example, sure. like the story that these ultrasounds tell of the fetus, like they are, they incredibly, I think, surreptitious and without, if you don't pay attention to how they work and how they're mobilized, they can be um, devious. And so I think a lot about both the, the good and the bad in film in the way it generates narrative, positive narratives about the world, but also can, um, without paying attention, can I think shape our consciousness um, in ways. I just don't think for all of our visual culture, we are actually visually literate in the way we might be textually literate, word literate. And so I think a lot about how to make us more visually literate, I think, to combat, I think, the manipulation of images. It occurs to I, I had an MRI yesterday of my shoulder because I'm older than dirt. And um, I guess that was film. Was Is that sound or is that film? I don't... It's moving images. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, uh, I guess so. fMRIs are moving images. MRIs are just like photographs. Right. Um, I think, yeah. But so, I mean, they have to be interpreted, right? Radiologists yes. interpret yes. those. And there's yes. a dispute over those interpretations. Tell me about it. I, that's one of the reasons. <laughs> yes. I had x-rays and everybody disagreed about them. So go get an MRI. Anyway. Um, so. Take them as truth. Like this weird idea like that is part of your body. That, but it's, <laughs> it's a reflection of your body. It's not actually your body. Okay, so we're about to leave the law and talk about culture, but we only have about five minutes left, so I think that's fair. Um, do you think Hollywood is – I think the best I've, – I've been – this is going to get me in trouble by, for so many people. But when I get depressed, I rewatch West Wing because I oh, think – <laughs> Because I think it's just like the world's best show ever. And not because it has a liberal bent, but because the writing, the directing, and the acting 
is just unbelievably good. And um, and I guess when I so the, so the episode I I I do I do it randomly. I watch an episode here or there or wherever. Um, and um, so much of it from 1999 and 2000 is still timely today. It yeah. does raise the question, do you think Hollywood is out of touch with mainstream America? And do you think that's a dangerous thing? So um, I like think so it's hard. It's always hard to evaluate the moment contemporaneously. So I, I think about in the past, Hollywood I did a study of trial films years ago, um, movies that have you know courtroom dramas right. in them. If you trace the themes in many of those courtroom dramas, what you see is Hollywood being very progressive and forward-looking. I don't know whether you'd call that out of touch, but they, they cast black judges as virtuous and good. The old right. white judges are the corrupt ones, for example. They're very pro-gay rights before that was a thing, think Philadelphia, right? Um, Who's Coming to Dinner, Interracial Marriage, 1967, filmed before Loving. So Jessica, pause right there because most of our audience will not remember that movie. But but I'm old enough where I watched that movie. It's it's a movie about an interracial couple with a Sidney Poitier, one of the most famous black actors of, of his generation or any generation. It had an effect on me. I was like nine years old and it absolutely had an effect on me. Of course, that's the whole yeah. point, right? And right. that's what Hollywood's not out of touch. Hollywood's hopeful. Yeah. Hollywood's planting seeds in your head about what the future could be and what it should be. Yes. That's just wonderful, right? And I actually think Hollywood does that a lot. Um, it's at least the, the um, Adam's Rib with right. um, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. That's a 1949 film about a woman lawyer besting her husband on the other side in the courtroom. Right. I mean, that's before... That's before feminism. So I know? want. So I want. I want to share an experience. I, I'm a big theater geek too. I love Stephen Sondheim. I, I love. I love the Broadway theater. I had never seen Showboat uh, uh, ever. Not the not the show nor the movie. And a few year, a couple years ago, I was late at night. It was during COVID. I was changing channels, and Showboat was on, which must be an early, late fifties, maybe early sixties thing. But it's it's about interracial marriage. And I, I couldn't believe there was a Broadway musical that that someone gets, you know, that that's very pro interracial marriage, but shows realistically the prejudice at the time. I was shocked by that, which supports your view that Hollywood is yeah, just trying no, to be. Progressive. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot also um, uh, trans rights. If you go back yeah. and look at films from the 20s, 30s, 40s, you're going to see because we didn't know how to look. Right. We didn't know how to look. Right. You're going to see a lot more under the surface conversations about gender non-binary, about trans, uh, trans men and trans women. And, and so Hollywood, Hollywood is a reflection of, of, our, of our culture, obviously, but it's also, it's a curated story. There's stories that they wanna, wanna tell. I think it's very powerful. I mean, one of the reasons I got into studying humanities and law was I was, um, I was studying French and Russian literature and film, and I was studying particularly revolutionary and political film and literature. The idea that um, one changes the world through novels and films. Sergei Eisenstein's films in the in the pre-Soviet era, for example. Sure. Um, and uh, and so I, I, you know, it's baked into my my brain that this is how revolutions happen, whether they're slow moving or cataclysmic. And um, I just I know that these kind of stories, the pe- popular stories people tell, um, change us. 
We 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 agree on that. Um, I I, I, the, I my favorite professor at college at Emory. I went from 1976 to 1980. Taught modern American history and cultural history, and it was his view, circa 1978, that by and, and the first view, the first point is un, not debatable. I don't think the most important post-war figure in American politics was Richard Nixon. That's obviously true. He was you know he was he was around forever and came back and all that. But he I don't think that's controversial. But the other thing he said was the Beatles. You can't oh. understand American history in the 60s and 70s, early 70s, without understanding the Beatles. And I think a lot of people would argue against that, but I think he's exactly, or Elvis Presley. I think he's exactly right. Do you, don't you agree? Well, I hadn't thought about it, actually, so yeah. I'd have to think, think yeah. more about it. I, I do think Elvis Presley resonates a little bit more with me when I'm thinking about uh, sexual revolution and civil right. rights and how that has shaped so much of the right. second half of the 20th century. But Beatles brought a edginess. I mean, they're not hardly edgy. No, but no. They brought an edginess to the United States. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I can see the argument being made. Well, one of his was that it made the world smaller. All of a sudden, this British well, rock band, a uh, pop band, whatever you want to call them, was yeah. the most foremost famous people in the world, except for Muhammad Ali and maybe a couple other people, you know. Um, so this has been wonderful. I know I know nothing about the subject matter. I do want to, this is going to be manipulative, but I want to use your interest in film to tell a quick story that, that I think my listeners and you might like. I, I just went to a conference for, that was full of non-lawyers, by the way. That was very refreshing. Um, it was a big conference. And I met a very famous Hollywood producer, Hollywood person. And he told me a story about Jack Nicholson. I just think it's funny, so I just want to tell it. Um, he, he was sitting behind Jack Nicholson, I think, in 1974 at the Academy Awards. Or I made the year wrong, but somewhere around there. And Nicholson was nominated and didn't get something. And this person told me that he tapped Nicholson on the shoulder and said, um, I'm so sorry you didn't win. And frankly, I think you should have won. And Nicholson <laughs> said to him, ah, I, I'm going to curse. I don't give a fuck. I'm going to win next year for Cuckoo's Nest anyway, which he did. <laughs> he did win Best Actor, I think, for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And yeah. that's, that's such a Jack Nicholson thing, right? I don't, I don't care. It doesn't I'm, matter. Yeah, okay. I'm going to win next year anyway. Jessica, I've talk. learned so much from you today. And I wish we had two hours to talk because I, I would learn another hour worth of stuff. Thank you so much for doing this. It's a pleasure. Pleasure chatting. Thank you. I hope we get to meet in person someday. Thank yes. You. Thank you. Too. Thank you.